When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. Once again, it's TG Tuesday. I'm joined today by Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. Here's what we're looking at right now. Uh, U.S. equity markets, for the most part, higher today. Uh, looks like all the major indices are in the green. Uh, S&P 500, the largest winner on the day, up 082 percent to close at 4,423. Big winning sectors on the day are healthcare, energy, and financials. Also out today, a report from the Federal Reserve. Household debt in the U.S. rose $313 billion. That's the fastest level of rise since 2007. It's nearly $15 trillion, according to the data out today from the Fed. To put that into perspective, that's nearly three quarters of U.S. GDP, which weighs in around $21 trillion in household debt alone. This number really knocked my socks off today. The majority of that new debt is from mortgage origination. Over the last four quarters, mortgage origination totaled $4.6 trillion, which is 44% of all outstanding loan balances, according to reporting out today by CNBC's Jeff Cox. That is quite a statistic. Finally, on the day, a major speech from SEC Commissioner, uh, Chairman, I should say, Gary Gensler, uh, at the Aspen Security Forum today, talking about the role of regulation in the digital asset, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency space. We'll have more to say on that later. But first, Tony Greer, welcome back to the show. That's great to be back, my man. How you doing? Good, man. We missed you. Oh, it's nice to be missed. It really is nice to come back from a little trip and uh, have people say that we're looking forward to hearing your comments on the markets, and it's great to be able to provide that, right? Yeah, so let's jump right in. What are your thoughts? What are you looking at right now? What have we missed? Bring us up to date. Yeah, you know, as a... Um you know, as a performance hawker, Ash, on August 3rd, I'm still sort of resonating on the July market performance, right? That That's actually following through on our screens now as the S&P climbs to essentially what looks like could be a new all-time high close today, if not, you know, within a couple of days. But I think the important thing to note is that um, in July, the S&P extended, obviously, to a new all-time high it made eight out of nine of the last months of rallying in the S&P. You know, we've got a tremendous streak building up here. Um, when the market has been this strong in the first half of the year, you'll have those stock market almanac people reminding you that the performance is usually really good into the end of the year. So I feel like we're right in the power curve of that trade where we can kind of ride this carefully and perhaps non-linearly but into the end of the year. And I love that you opened up with the household debt um, data because I do think that that's important. And I think it's also a very close offshoot 
to um, why the dollar backed off in July. And I think that this is relevant for a couple of reasons. You know, the Federal Reserve concocted this dollar short covering rally to really put some heat on the commodity complex in order to make their transitory comment seem like it was really pertinent. Um, you know, and then we had Jerome Powell come out last week when I was away, and this was a clip that you couldn't miss from Europe about his literally verbal diarrhea trying to discuss what type of inflation we were having and how some prices were going to be persistently high and other prices might be transitorily high. But what it sounded like to me was that we've got a Fed chairman that is actually way more concerned about the inflation picture than he had led on to being in the past. So when I look at the debt number that you brought in this morning and I compare it to the fact that, you know, right now the dollar is just not going to be able to rally when we've got a $21 trillion economy with $30 trillion in debt and a balance sheet that's expanding through $7 trillion with no signs of stopping right now. And as you know, that no sign of stopping by the Federal Reserve or the global central banks has been a pretty strong tenet of our assets are being inflated trade. You know, so I think that that's kind of relevant. You know, this debt, these debt numbers do come back. They do weigh on the dollar. Um, and what's interesting to me is that, you know, bonds are bid over right now. So that for me is something that's really, really hard to tend to contend with when we're trading into this inflationary scenario. You know, we've got 10 year yields now backing off towards 1.2% and lower. We've got all of the curves essentially tightening up from the highs. And we've got five-year break-evens that have remained fairly bid, showing that we do have inflationary stirs around the market. So this has been very difficult to unpack, Ash, where bonds continue rallying, stocks continue rallying, commodities continue rallying. You know, and here's the Federal Reserve over on the side saying, you know, this inflation is going to be transitory. So the, the picture has gotten a little bit difficult to discern, and that has, to me, shown through in the July performance of the stock market, right? We saw the S&P rally to a new high, but the rotation was barely recognizable for me. We had healthcare, utilities, cybersecurity, and software leading the market. We had, in the negative side, we had energy getting trounced for 8%, transports uh, losing ground, social media and cannabis getting lambasted, and the S&P is still able to make a new high. So when that rotation changes to something I don't recognize, we have to sort of wait and see how things pan out. And that's really the stage that I'm in right now. I know there's a lot to unpack there, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Tony, you just set us up for a three-hour conversation. That's what we're going to do today, the marathon daily briefing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Caputo and Nick will kill us if we do that. But it's good to know we do have enough material to do it. Look, yeah. some really important points. I don't think we quite got to an all-time closing high today on the S&P, but it looks like we're really close. We're in flirting distance there, right? Really close. You know, I'm looking at bond yields. You were talking about the U.S. tenure. Look, we've dropped. It looks like from a high of around one spot seven four in April on yield down to one spot one seven right now. I mean, that is that is striking, man. An incredibly fast rate of change, which needs to be respected. Um, you know, it kind of describes to me, it, it's another case in point why I don't stick my hand into the bond market buzzsaw um, <laughs> and let it get chopped off because it would have gotten chopped off with yields as low as they are. 
right? There, there's a few things that have resonated with me, Ash, and, um, you know, you'll appreciate, you know, you like listening as much as I do to guys like Grant Williams interview Kyle Bass. And that recent interview was just launched yesterday. And I love that Kyle was all over. Um, two things to me were important. Number one, he was all over the fact um, that he thinks the Fed is not going to end this posture of constantly accommodating markets, which is a theme that we've discussed here. Remember when we talked about Felix Zuloff and 40 or $50 trillion Fed balance sheet? Okay, Kyle Bass is of the same mindset. The other thing that I loved is that he's saying, you know, I'm going out to dinner here in the States and I'm getting the dinner bill and it looks like it's I'm, I'm paying in pesos. You know, the flight, the, the number has inflated so much for dinner for two in the U.S. And so the, here we have that dichotomy of the inflation signals hitting your wallet full force, hitting your grocery bill full force every month, a little bit higher, incrementally higher. And the Fed saying there's not much inflation and the bond market is agreeing with the Fed. So, you know, we don't have a leg to stand on here as market participants looking for inflation. Meanwhile, we know it's happening, right? So the idea is, what do we trade, right? How do we get in the right lane? And I'm still sticking with the idea that the oil market is very much intact, right? We've had a little pullback from the highs, um, but structurally, the market is well intact there, as is the commodity rally. So we've got to really just sort out now, you know, why bonds, stocks and commodities won't stop making new highs every day and figure out which train to get on. It's really difficult and it's a very transitionary portion of the trade to me. But I have to be honest with you, that's the conversation going on in my head. Boy, that's a complex and nuanced picture that you paint. This divergence between the real world and financial markets. Listen, I'm a, a, a New York bachelor and the world's worst cook. I know how horrible the food prices are, especially with prepared foods. 22 bucks for a grilled chicken sandwich. I mean, it's just crazy out there. Uh, and I think that that it seems like maybe it's some some labor shortage getting factored in because prepared foods are a lot higher right now, where the rate of change in prepared foods is increasing at a faster rate than the rate of change in food in in general. Uh, but, you know, this does speak to what you were suggesting, this disconnect between financial markets, understanding the different directions that bond markets are going in versus U.S. equity markets. By the way, we should probably say DXY, U.S. dollar index, 92.05 right now. Yeah. Like we said, the dollar index has backed off the highs, but yields have not recovered. So you're sort of seeing, you know, the dollar index starting to show that inflationary trade coming back. If you remember, you know, the yields were making their highs when the dollar was on its lows. Um, clearly, we're away from the lows now um, with the rally that the Federal Reserve manufactured. But commodities haven't backed off and five-year break-evens haven't backed off. So you can make some cases in the market where, you know, the trade is still intact and there are other places that it's gotten blown apart and maybe overshot. And I think that that probably speaks to positioning being offsides. It feels like the grain markets have run into at least a little bit of a technical quagmire where they're not making new highs every day. We saw lumber back all the way off. But it feels like the reality, you know, Ash, I was able to basically unplug from the screens for a good 10 or 11 days, literally without looking at any prices or any price action, and just sort of picking up headlines here and there, but remaining totally confident that you know the S&P rally was going to be intact, that the oil rally was going to be intact. And for me, it was really empowering to come back and flip the screens on and have them tell me, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. You know, There are a couple of challenges here and there, 
But right now we're at, you know, a juncture in the trade where we're getting a little bit of a change in the rotation, but it's still generating the same result, right? Incremental higher highs in the energy markets, incremental higher highs in the S&P, you know, a few gut checks here and there. But the market is bouncing off of support levels and showing you that it is actually still in a destination to higher places. And so with that being the core tenet of what we're looking for, you know, if we can have the rotation match up with what should be happening in our head, which would be, you know, a continuation of the base metal rally, a continuation of the gold rally, a continuation of the energy rally, those things aren't happening right now. But at the same time, the S&P is holding it together and, and continuing to make new highs. So it's for now, for me in my head, it's just deciding whether I'm weighted properly in this sector rotation for the next phase of the rally. And so it's obviously, yeah, that's fair. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, no, I was going to say, tell me about that. What do you think about your waiting right now? Obviously, one of the things that's been interesting to me, and I think to you, is just the whipsawing sector to sector that's been happening. Uh, who leads, who follows, who declines, and yet at the same time, uh, the aggregate indices marching higher. Tell me how you think about that sector rotation and how you position for it. Yeah, you know, Ash, we, we've been, you know, we've been, I'm just looking at my view matrix here just to go over it, and we've been, um, you know, we've been postured long the energy market. We've been postured long um, metals and mining, but we've been shaken out of that length right near the top um, as that metals and mining sector came off. But as we're still bullish, that sector it didn't really back off much and it didn't give us a chance to get in very cheap either. So, you know, when you're looking for those things to keep going and then you turn and you look at July's performance, and you know the market is led by healthcare and utilities, two sectors that I have precisely zero exposure to. You know, I have to take do a little bit of a gut check and say, you know, am I chasing down these commodities or are these commodity trades now getting a little bit later innings? And maybe I should posture into something like healthcare just for technical reasons. Maybe I should swing into something like more like financials if those are going to pick up and run again. Um, should the yield curve hold in here and should yields hold here? If yields hold in here, then financials are still dirt cheap at these prices, you know? So there's a lot to consider. And, um, you know, th those are the conversations that are going on in my head right now as I sort of re enter after taking a little break and coming back with a lot of dry powder that I'm looking to employ, but I want to employ it tactically. You know, I've been looking to get into the grains trade and I've been looking at some of the technical, uh, I've been looking at some of the chemical trades as they are offshoots of the oil rally, um, obviously with petroleum byproducts potentially rallying. So that's really what I'm doing right now as I get back in is sifting through the sector performances. And uh, I'm going to be really keyed in on this week's close to see if it's a continuation of that July rally or if we start to see the manifestation of what I'm expecting, which is more rallying in inflation-based sectors, metals and mining, gold stocks, continuation in oil, a pickup in transports, and then following on with financials and technology. Yeah.
You know, to hit on the inflation trade and also the point that you made about rate of change, I have to tell you that report that I was talking about out of the Fed on uh, on the uh, levels of household debt, the one statistic in there that I literally needed to read three times to make sure that I got it right uh, was over the last four quarters, mortgage origination totaling nearly $4.6 trillion. And this is the killer which is 44% of all outstanding loan balances. So in other words, 44 cents of every dollar for US residential mortgages outstanding right now were originated in the last 12 months. 30-year mortgages, 20-year mortgages, 25-year mortgages, 44% originated in the last 12 months. People are taking advantage of the cheap rates. You know, it's part of that secular push, um, you know, out of big cities and that secular push into home offices. And I think, you know, that's really what fueled a lot of that borrowing. Um, yeah. You know, it, it was sort of anecdotal, I think, this time around, Ash, where we can actually, you know, look into the newspaper and get a little bit of an idea why that's happening. So at least it's not as alarming. Uh, it takes some of the sting out of it. But, you know, you point, I, I agree with you, you point out these numbers are getting historically stretched now. And so you have to wonder if there's going to be a pullback to the mean, right? And 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 if that's a pullback to the mean, and then maybe there's a pullback in the housing trade, which we haven't really gotten at all yet, um, that I would welcome if there was a steep dip, because I still think that they're set up for success. I know that there are some really strong opponents to that trade, um, because I know that mortgage applications have backed off since the highs and since yes. all of that debt was taken yes. out. And so there's certainly the argument that the home builders could be in a position to back off sharply to match up with that back off in mortgage applications. I would relish that dip if it came. And I'm kind of respecting the view that guys like Julian Brigden have about builders backing off here. Um, but I am very much postured the other way as in I'm flat looking to buy them rather than short looking to ride the trade down. Yeah, I think you made two important points there. First of all, some of that's refinancing action, obviously, with historically low rates. Uh, and second, those numbers have backed down in terms of the new application, new construction. Uh, some of the indices of future construction have slowed. Uh, but man, that is just a striking number. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you point out that, that I like that you say the, you know, the pace has slowed in that housing sector. Similarly, Ash, we saw ISM data yesterday, right? Yeah. ISM manufacturing data comes out and we've been watching the prices paid module. Um, we saw the ISM prices paid, I think in June, tick up to 92. We came in yesterday looking for like an 89 and got something like an 85. So, you know, prices paid while still trading at the high end of the range, therefore inflationary, has slowed the pace a little bit. Right. And maybe that's the explanation for the bond yields backing off so much, even though we think they've gone farther than they should have. But it does make sense to me that, you know, the reopening pace, the mortgage application pace, the home builder pace, the energy re rebound pace, all of that was scorching for a little while on the highs. You know, when, when we're seeing, you know, jet fuel consumption pick up, we're seeing refinery utilization pick up. So, you know, the cyclical trade was literally burning for a while as we had that big reopening party for a couple of months. So it makes perfect sense for me for this trade to sort of back off in nonlinear fashion, trade it to support. And then I think pretty it seems pretty telegraphed to me that a lot of this inflation trade is going to get back on its feet. And the reason that I can say that is because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Federal Reserve comments about um, 
you know, tr- the inflation being transitory. And we got this huge dollar rally that, you know, knocked crude oil back to 65. It knocked the S&P back to 100-day moving averages, thinking that the, uh, excuse me, back to its 50-day, thinking that the Federal Reserve was going to start a tightening cycle. And here we are, and the stock market keeps pressing on, making a new high, bonds keep going. And so it looks to me like this is going to continue for a little while while we sort out which market is right, the bond market or the stock market. Boy, you're so right. Such a complicated picture out there. RIP historical correlations across the board in so many ways. And look, uh, these are the ISM number from yesterday. Uh, so the the rate at the 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 price at which manufacturers uh, were paying uh, manufacturing prices fell uh, by the most in 16 months yesterday. This is on the factory ISM, uh, the second month over month decline. So you know, you try and think about things at the margin. You try and think about things, the second derivative, the rate of change. We saw, obviously, this collapse, then this huge rebound, and now we're seeing a decline in the rate of expansion. Uh, it's a very complicated picture to sort of telegraph uh, and figure out, but it does seem like the rate of growth has slowed, in some cases, slowed dramatically in several key ways. Yeah, and you know, I wanted to ask you, how does it feel in there on Marxist Island, where everybody's going to need a vaccine passport to go to a restaurant, to a gym, or to see a play? I don't know. I got vaccinated the minute I was able to, like in May. So uh, I'm I'm good. But that is uh, that is the word coming out today. That's the speculation. We'll see if it actually gets passed. Has it been passed yet? I don't think it's been passed, right? No, no. You know, De Blasio's pushing it. Cuomo's pushing it. You know, all the mad are pushing it. So it's you know, it seems like something that we're definitely be having the conversation about probably a lot faster than anybody, you know, a couple months ago that this was conspiracy theory that we were going to move to any kind of a vaccine passport. And now here we're talking about it right in New York City. And I think that the ramifications of that, you know, will be kind of devastating because I think that we'll get to the point where, you know, I think a lot of people that have been living under the idea of my body, my choice, as was being pushed by, you know, most parties. And uh, all of a sudden, that seems to not be the case now that we're dealing with this pandemic with the 99.9 something survival rate. So I think we're coming to a head here on the tyranny versus freedom conversation. And um, it's interesting to see it happen right in my backyard. I'm very interested to see how um, that works out for the restaurants that are going to be checking papers, as it were, out the door, because I'm going to guess that a lot of people are going to get turned off by that. Yeah, well, we're going to be following that through markets, certainly, to see what the impact is, uh, which is our remit here, and to think about how that has an impact on markets. But right now, uh, still in the very early phases of that conversation. Tony, to shift gears here a little bit, I'm curious if you happen to see uh, any of the speech or read the text of the speech by Gary Gensler coming out of the Aspen Security Forum today. Um, I saw the headline, and I kind of watch it the way that I watch Bitcoin um, is... I don't get too caught up in it. I see the headline. I look at price action. To me, price action is following the narrative to a T, right? Mm-hmm. We, held, we held down at 30K. For me, that was shocking. I, I thought it looked like Bitcoin was going to curl over down to 20K. The chart looked terrible. Um, you know, it was a classic case of the hodlers got together. Nobody's selling through that level. It dipped below 30K a couple times and came roaring back. That was a sign for the bulls to get involved. You know, we we tiptoed into Mike Novogratz's big party out in the Hamptons that I'm sure was centered around Bitcoiners and laser eyes. And Bitcoin rallied into that into the weekend. 
And then we got these headlines from Gensler that bring it back into, you know, um, reality lens where, you know, if we're going to start talking about know your client rules for cryptocurrency trading, that means that there's a lot more regulation that's going to come down the pike. So it does make sense for me to see Bitcoin fail 40 something K and back off into the 30s again. I still think it's destined for another test of 30K and a fall through there. But, you know, it may take some time. It's just turning out to not be the best inflation trade, but that probably has a lot of other good use cases in its um, wheelhouse. You know, that's attracting plenty of bulls that, that I completely understand. Tony, let me read you and our viewers a quote. You tell me if you think there's any ambiguity here. This is coming from Gary Gensler. Quote, we need additional congressional authorities to prevent transactions products and platforms from falling between regulatory cracks. We also need more resources to protect investors in this growing and volatile sector. We stand ready to work closely with Congress, the administration, our fellow regulators, and our partners around the world to close some of these gaps. Does that sound like a man who's serious about regulation or not? Man, sounds like he uh, means what he says and probably says what he means. And uh, I tell you, you know, th these are the things that is going to be uh, a great battle to watch for me, right? Because we're definitely going to have to see, you know, I, 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 Gensler obviously has one eye on the Bitfinex story, which is finally coming out, you know, Tether collapsing. And I'm not following it closely. I'm following it with one eye. But, you know, it looks like this is not going to be an extinction event for Bitcoin, rather a sort of come to reality event for Bitcoin where, you know, maybe maybe, um, you know, if Bitcoin lives through Gary Gensler's regulatory plan for it, um, that will be another great sign of success for it. Um, if it knocks a couple of percent off the price, I wouldn't be shocked. But, you know, these are the battles that have to get fought right before our eyes so that as traders, we can see what the market is actually calling for. Right. Yeah. Let me just say, as somebody who watches crypto Twitter pretty closely, today has been an absolutely fascinating day in that space. Uh, there are a lot of hot takes out on Gensler's speech. Very few of them, interestingly enough, in agreement. Uh, the Bitcoin maximalists, the Bitcoin the people who consider themselves Bitcoiners first and foremost, seem to see this as something that's relatively positive for Bitcoin. They believe that Gensler is focusing more uh, on securities, more on DeFi, more on things effectively that are not Bitcoin. Uh, he actually signaled in the beginning of the speech some very positive and very supportive things for Bitcoin itself. He talked about the Satoshi white paper, its impact on him personally. So there's some speculation out there about whether or not this is going to hit Bitcoin uh, price off uh, a little bit today. It's off about 2.7%, uh, which in Bitcoin, tw trailing 24 hours, which in Bitcoin land is not a huge amount of volatility. It's down uh, trading uh, around, uh, well, it just broke 38,000, literally as I'm watching it right now. Uh, but there's still not a huge amount of volatility in Bitcoin land. So there is this speculation about, is this something that is going to hit uh, maybe more of the things that look, uh, taste, and feel more like securities than Bitcoin? Uh, and we should probably also point out that Tether still has not broken its peg. It's still trading uh, flat at a dollar uh, or thereabouts. So uh, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, questions. I've got a, a poll out on Twitter right now that I just released uh, a couple of hours ago about what we're going to call, how will future generations uh, re refer to SEC Chair Gary Gensler's speech? Uh, he says he calls it the Wild West. That's option one. It will be the Wild West speech. Uh, and option two, this is my favorite. I'm not allowed to vote because I created the Twitter poll, but the make no mistake speech. He says the phrase, make no mistake 
three times uh, in the speech, and he's saying it in reference to folks who don't think U.S. securities laws apply uh, to what are uh, effectively, in Gensler's views, U.S. securities. So, a lot of interesting stuff happening in that space right now. Totally is, man. There's a lot to follow and a lot to unpack. But this seems like you know this seems like a pretty main event for the for the crypto people, right? Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the 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 first inning or the first pitch maybe of the main event. Yeah. It's still it's still very early, but you know there are. It's also interesting in the space. There's kind of this split between the folks who have more of a sort of cipher cypherpunk libertarian bent. Uh, who are very much against regulation. And there are a lot of people who have been in or close to the institutional space who are saying, in effect, hey, regulate us. We want to be regulated. We want to be able to grow this so that institutional uh, players can come into the space, can feel some comfort in the space. So that in itself is almost uh, uh, maybe a burgeoning civil war or a cold war being fought within the space itself. It's just an incredibly interesting time. And again, I say this all the time, but I just I think it's still so early in the space, right? I think it's just so early. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, financial deregulation is you know still have yeah. Excuse me, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, financial, I guess, uh, deregulation or, or decoupling from um, legacy financial structure seems to be what the market is pining for, and uh, you know that's a trade that you definitely don't want to miss. I haven't figured out the uh, you know the capacity that I'm going to be able to capture it, but it definitely feels you know you can see the companies you know the squares, the eBay's, and that and companies are getting more relevant than. Uh, big banks in a lot of ways in terms of how much consumer capital they're holding on to. And, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of change happening before our eyes. It's literally next to impossible for me to keep up. Yeah. But, you know, it, we've got last sale to Tether 2. And, um, you know, Bitcoin, to, to me, for for if you would have asked me what price Bitcoin would be trading while Gary Gensler is coming out with a pretty clear, you know, plan to to at least begin the conversation about regulating it, I would have said that we would be trading down through 32k rather than up here at 38k. So, you know, Bitcoin is still showing that there's plenty of institutional investment around and it's holding a pretty decent price for the headlines that it's taking off uh, that it's taking on if you ask me right now. So, that's a pretty good feather in its cap. We'll see how it pans out. So many great points there, and I think that uh, you know maybe some of the uh, the coins that look a little bit more like securities uh, are getting hit a little bit harder. Just just sort of anecdotally flipping through that data, but so many good points. We're right at the very beginning of this almost Googleification of uh, financial services and financial markets. To harken back to something that you mentioned earlier, something from uh, more of the legacy uh, world that we watch very closely, uh, which is oil. Uh, we have a clip that I wanted to show here. This is a, a conversation today, an expert view that we did uh, available to Real Vision subscribers from Samir Madani. Let's take a look at the clip. This is about tracking illegal oil tankers. In my line of work, I do a lot of imagery analysis of the vessels that move move around uh, the world in in a very stealthy manner. And in order to avoid detection, they do some pretty funny things. Uh, in some cases, they show up with a completely uh, fresh coat of uh, paint, and it's a different color. Obviously, it might go from green to red. And so you're sitting there, you know, stroking your chin, wondering. What you're looking at, but in our case, we also have uh, folks taking ground imagery. So they have lengthy lenses, and they're taking photos of these vessels from great distances at different angles. 
and we're catching the names of the vessels or just maybe they paint off the sides of the, you know, the first and, and last couple of letters. So you only get the middle portion, which is pretty funny. I have a case right now in Venezuela I'm looking at. Uh, and in some cases, they uh, are short on time. They can't uh, come up with the uh, enough paint for the work. So they invest in nylon tarp and uh, the kind of nylon tarp that you use to cover an entire facade of a building when you're, you know, during winter uh, while, while working on, on, the, on, the, on the facade uh, to trap the heat. Now they covered the deck and uh, posted on Twitter the other day, there was a, a vessel that pulled up at Jose Terminal and we saw these four strips of uh, nylon <laughs> on, on the different sides of the deck. And so it looks like a red vessel, but it's got these blue uh, stripes on the, uh, along the length of the, of the deck. So every week we're, we're discovering uh, new tactics and most of the, um, they went from, uh, you know, just manipulating the AIS uh, beacon data uh, to now also, uh, you know, going that extra mile or putting in that extra effort to uh, change the physical appearance of the vessel. So there you have it, a really interesting sort of view of this really strange world that I didn't know much about, about illegal oil tankers and the extent to which uh, folks will go to camouflage uh, those tankers. That's the kind of depth and analysis you're probably not going to see anywhere else but real vision. Uh, Tony, you were talking a little bit off camera about some of the things that you're watching in the oil market. Give us a bit of a sense of where you are. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I tell you, I like that clip, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, rewatch that because it's like it reminds me of the Mark Rich side of oil trading, right? There's the sort of, you know, the transparent side that you see on the screen, and then there's this renegade side to oil that actually takes place. That's almost like a black market for oil, but is actually pretty significant, as we just saw. Um, but what was really cool to me um, while we're on the topic, and I just want to kind of tie one more. Um, point into this great interview with Kyle Bass while we're talking about oil, since he's very much an expert in the space. You know, as soon as they got on the topic, Grant and Kyle, Kyle comes out and says, I think we're going to see $100. You know, and for somebody that's positioned long, has the same idea, I basically jump out of my seat and say, why? You know, and he is very clear on it. And I want to read this one quote that I thought was really great. And along the lines, Ash, of things that we've discussed here. Okay, let me quote Kyle Bass. We're in July of 2021, after seven years of malinvestment and the crowd that is virtue signaling that we can just flip a switch and go electric. I think they haven't done the math, and I don't think they realize that hydrocarbon demand is inelastic, right? And that covers a lot of the ground that we've spoken about with this green movement saying, okay, we're going to go to wind and solar and not having calculated how much fossil fuel and actually how much metal it's going to take to get us there, right? So it was exciting to hear that, you know, another fellow oil bull is looking at this market, which is very much skimming the highs and nothing is changing about his bullish posture. Right. That reminded me of how we've been looking at it. And we're saying, yeah, I know oil's gone from ten dollars to seventy five dollars, but it might be a better buy here than it was down there, because really, there's very few things standing in the way of the oil market right now, other than getting blindsided by strict and harsh lockdowns. So I just thought that was really cool that he was kind of looking at it and very suspect of the green movement, very calm and collected about how the market is very much taking all the news in stride, staying on the highs 
and he remains as bullish as we do. So that's just another view to share while we're coming off of that cool story. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You and I have been having that same conversation right here on the Real Vision Daily Briefing for a long time. Listen, like, you know, solar and wind and tidal energy, green energy, wonderful. I love it all. But the reality is, uh, in terms of where we're going to be fueling up uh, in a week, a month, a day, a year, it's going to be hydrocarbons. And that's not a statement of something that I want to be true. It's just the reality of the physical mechanics of the demand right now and for the foreseeable future in hydrocarbon. Again, not a position uh, against the green movement, just a statement of fact about how long it's going to take to complete this transition. This is going to be something that your your kids are going to be figuring out. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it was funny that you, how you how you put that. And I thought of the fact that you know, we just saw refinery utilization come out of the tank from the t- from the time that all the airlines were shut down and grind higher all the way back to pre-pandemic levels of refinery utilization. Meanwhile, the cost of gas has doubled along the way. And I think that that's what Kyle is talking about when he's saying that the green movement hasn't figured out that hydrocarbon demand is inelastic, right? Meaning Gasoline buyers don't really care incrementally at the margin, the extra nickel that they're paying. They're going to fill up their tank, right? They're going to fill up the jet fuel tank so the plane can get across the Atlantic. It's just what's going to happen. And so I just think it builds a further case for us to be confident about the fossil fuel trade coming back to life. That's all. Right. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Exactly. Not a moral judgment, not a political judgment. It's an economic judgment of fact and the way that these markets trade. Tony, in honor of your return to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, what do you say? Can we do a quick speed round, get some questions in? Yeah, let's do it, man. I'd love to hear some. Love to hear All right. What's on people's minds? Here's one from Hef. Uh, Tony, what are your thoughts on the marijuana sector in the short to medium term? Bad. Bad, right? We just had a month of July where cannabis was the worst performing sector on my radar screen. Um, I think the US MSOs were down 10 or 11%. I think the Canadians were down something like that, something in the ballpark. Um, you know, I, I've been cautious mainly since uh, for technical reasons, quite honestly, because as we were legalizing state by state through the election and things like that, um, we got on the path. uh, Chuck Schumer put us very clearly on the path toward federal legalization. And while all that happened, the cannabis charts all put in these big head and shoulder tops. Right. What what was interesting to me was that as they broke down through the neckline. We didn't see a lot of buying, even though we're talking about federal legalization on the tape now. So it's scaring me that we haven't reached a bottom in the sell the fact trade. And I'm very nervous about the cannabis stocks in the short term. In the long term, I mean, you know, give me another 20% discount and you're going to force me to put some money to work in this space, as in a first dollar I'll be putting back in after taking profits and riding that trade on the upside for a little while. So I'm letting the chart speak to me. And the fact that it's got a scary toppy formation now has sort of got me saying, I'll wait before I can buy some cannabis stocks. And I think that I can get them cheaper. That's how I'm looking at it. 
Yeah, such a great tactical analysis and a tactical breakdown of the way you think about a sector that you're structurally, secularly long on, but but bearish on in the short term uh, for price reasons and some of the new cycle stories not moving the tape. Um, another one comes to us. This is a question from Lena. I'm going to update this with what we already know. Uh, Lena's curious about what your time frame is on oil. Uh, you're bullish there. How do you think about your time horizons? Um, I think I, I look at the oil time horizon really, you know, as a price action junkie, just kind of decide if it can maintain the trajectory that it's on. And when I look at um, when I look at when oil steps into the ring, I'll call it right when oil the when the oil rally and the bulls and bears get in a big fight. Like, for example, in the middle of July, when OPEC came out and said they were going to allow the UAE to increase production by 400,000 barrels a day starting um, in a couple of months, right? That seemed like the perfect sell the fact event for the oil markets. Um, We had been leading up to leading up to that. We had had Jerome Powell construct that dollar rally out of the FOMC minutes and really um, put this bond market rally in motion that took some heat off the inflation trade. Following that, we got that decision out of OPEC that knocked crude oil down from 72 to 65 and back in all of five sessions. So when I see uh, dips in crude oil that steep in price and short in duration, it gives me confidence that this market can take a licking and keep on ticking. So as long as we remain above the 100-day moving average here, you know, I look for crude oil to trade, you know, $75 in, in, you know, a couple of short weeks and then progress to 85 in a couple of months. And then I think by the end of the year, we'd be in the high 80s, low 90s looking for 100. And so yeah. that's kind of how I'm pacing it out right now. If the chart yeah. can maintain this trajectory, get the ruler out and see how long it's going to take us to get to your price target. Yeah. Final question for you, Tony, if we can keep this one short, because I'm mindful of the time. It looks like we've run a little bit long. But Ralph Humphrey wants to know, what commodities is Tony most bullish on and why? I think it's a great question. It is a good question because the deck keeps shuffling quite a bit. You know, as you, I, I don't want to beat a, a dead horse because he's obviously listened to us speak about oil now, and I don't want to go, you know, reiterate that diatribe on the short term. But what's interesting to me right now, aluminum making new highs for the move very quietly, right? China try to take the heat off of the metals market. What they wound up doing was backing iron ore off the highs. All of the other base metals just consolidated in range. Next thing you know, as soon as China stopped making comments about trying to bottle up the commodity rally, aluminum breaks off to a new high. So to me, that's symptomatic of what we've been seeing over the last year, where every time you turn around, it's a new commodity taking the lead. So I'm going to be focusing on um, oil in the short term. I'm really bullish, but I've got to keep my eye on this copper and aluminum complex here that looks like it's about to pop again. Yeah. By the way, I should say, it looks like this uh, mandate in New York for uh, proof of vaccination is uh, going to be going into effect. I guess it can come directly out of the mayor's office. Looks like August 16, enforcement beginning September 13. We should point out there's some pushback happening right now by places like the uh, New York City Hospitality Alliance, uh, which is a restaurant organization. I suspect we will be hearing more about that story, especially in New York. Yeah, they're all going to push back from the idea of pushing customers out of the door of their restaurants after they were shut down for, you know, I don't know, half a year or a year. So, you know, it seems to me like we were just getting some momentum to get back into, you know, full economic reality again. 
um, they made up another variant or maybe the COVID made up another variant that's going around. They're trying to sell the narrative that every time the markets go down, it's because of the variant. I think it's really interesting conversation. And this is going to be where the rubber hits the road with the tyrannical overtake in New York City. And I don't think the people are going to go for it. Some will, some might. And in the end, I think that the um, I think that the stores that and the uh, theaters that try to implement this will be the ones that are suffering dearly. Yeah, Tony. Final thoughts on markets to summarize. You've been away for a while. What are your final thoughts? Big picture, where we are right now. From thirty thousand feet up, man. You've got central bankers. You've got the Chinese Communist Party, all trying to take shots at the commodity rally and cooling it off. And when I come back from not looking at prices and flipping my screens on and I see stocks, commodities and bonds bid only, it looks still like a pretty healthy liquidity driven rally to me with the Fed making no comments about really uh, about reversing course and the balance sheet ticking higher. So if we're sticking with this idea that the Fed is Fed is inflating assets and if you have assets, you're going to be OK. The screens now corroborate with that, where the S&P keeps making a new high. We've got the bond market rally to sort of sort out mentally and see what that means with our inflation. But when I look at the BCOM still scra scraping the highs with, with grains coming off, you know, I, I can't help but be a secular commodity bull still coming out of that March lockdown low. Nothing's changed about this picture. We've got supply constraints tight, um, you know, tight inventories. And it just looks like the commodity trade is a one-way train right now. Tony Greer, very well said. Welcome back. It's great to have you back on the Rail Vision Daily Briefing. It's great to be back, my man. Hopefully, we'll see more of you in the near future, Ash. Indeed. Thanks for joining us, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.